This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Okay, why don't we get started? Um, I, I guess we're in the afternoon, so good afternoon, everyone. I have the uh, great pleasure of introducing this week's Grand Rounds and our guest speakers, Dr. Ravi Deha and Dr. Reza Manesh. And with their permission, I would, uh, if, if I get their permission, I prefer to refer to them as Ravi and Reza for the rest of the hour. So I got an okay from you guys. <laughs> so, so for those of you guys who don't know, Rob and, and Reza are two of the co-founders of the Clinical Problem Solvers podcast. And today we're, we're really fortunate that they're going to work through a case for us. So I got to put in my own plug. So some of you guys know I am a huge consumer of medical podcasts and, and podcasts <laughs> in general. Um, so for me, podcasting is sort of the, sort of the ultimate multitasking content format they're so easy to listen to when you're doing other things like exercising or working around the house. And, and I want to say that it, this is a plug for them, but it's the truth that the clinical problem solvers is my favorite medical podcast because of my own interest in the clinical reasoning process. And I'm going to let, uh, I'll let Reza and Robbie make their own comments in a minute, but, but the podcast does a number of things really, really well in my mind. So one of the things is that they're really good at making the clinical reasoning process process explicit, and they really do a great job of explaining complex cases in a way that's understandable, at least to me. But, but there's things that, in my mind, are more important. And so the first of these is that the podcast really creates this incredible platform that disseminates the excitement and joy of clinical reasoning. And, uh, and you know, so Reza and Robbie and the rest of their team are really, really great at sending the message that, uh, that, that there's a lot of excitement and joy in the, in the diagnostic process. The other thing that really resonates with me is that they've really created this incredibly inclusive community. And the message that they send is that everybody can do this. It's not just the unique few that can do it. And so that's, that's another great message. So really briefly, so, so Robbie, if I'm wrong, you guys tell me I got it off. I think I got off your bio sketch on the internet. So assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at UCSF, um, Brown, sorry, the Albert Medical School at Brown University graduate, and uh, then went to do residency at UCSF. Reza is, is actually our neighbor now, and I'm jealous. So he's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine down the street at Northwestern. Um, he went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, and then he did, his, he did his internal medicine training at UCSF. And I just have to say this, the fact that they were both UCSF graduates makes me suspect that at least in some way, they got their love of clinical reasoning from Dupree Dollywall, because that has to be the case. Because for those of you guys who don't know, Dr. Dollywall is a professor at UCSF, and he's really nationally known as, as, as really a master diagnostician and a master educator. Um, and, and I'm going to stop for one second. Before we go on the case, is, is there anything you guys want to say? Well, I think, uh, you know, Reza just texted me. I'll read the text out loud, actually, when I'm at the risk of Reza's embarrassment. Wow. Uh, such, loving them. Such kind people. And I think, um, to keep it brief, that summarizes both of our feelings right now. I um, guess we do text each other in the middle of these things to try to align our thoughts. <laughs> so if you see us going like this, uh, we, are, we, do, we do communicate. Thank you so much for such a kind introduction. We feel at home already. And, um, and yes, I think the message that it emphasizes is if you're listening to this and about to go on this journey um, with a case on, on this case with us, um, all of us can do this. Any of us can do it. It takes a lot of deliberate practice, and it's a skill that, like any other skill, requires a lot of work and a lot of smart work. 
And what we on the podcast try to do is try to give everyone the tools. Um, and if you use them, uh, you will get much further than President and I. A special thanks to Kevin, of course, who has put this case together. I, um, Kevin from his uh, Patreon uh, excursions and a lot of gratitude to all the effort that it takes to put together a case. So thank you. Okay, so we're going to present the case in a second. And so this is an unknown case, at least to them. Um, and, and, and Reza, sort of like you, I was on service. I actually came off of service last week. And this is a case that I just had when I was on service. I did ask the patient their permission to present the case. So I, I, I felt that that was appropriate. Um, and for people who don't know, so you already heard the shout out to Kevin. And uh, so for that, you guys who don't know, Kevin Grzynski, he's one of our current M4s and he's going to be the presenter. And so uh, my, my plug for Kevin is that in addition to being an outstanding student, he's the founder of our own podcast. So, so we're, because imitation is a sincere form of flattery, <laughs> we've created our own clinical reading podcast for Rush students, alert and oriented. Um, so for those of you guys who don't know the format, we, the case here is to be broken down into a number of aliquots or I guess they're logical breaks. At the end of each aliquot, Robbie and Reza will discuss their clinical reasoning both individually. And I think one of the cool things is they do it as a team. Um, and the aliquots, I won't even say, well, hopefully, I'm sure we'll lead them down a path with the final aliquot revealing the diagnosis. So with that background, Kevin, you're up. We're going to present the first aliquot. Yeah, since I'm about to do some talking, I just want to say a few words too in verses. Welcome to Rush Clinical Problem Solvers. So <laughs> echoing everything that Dr. Abrams said, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, I hope everyone's excited as me to listen to the magician and the mathematician reason through this case. It's such a special opportunity to be able to present in this format to the two who sparked my passion for clinical reasoning and inspired the journey that I've since embarked on. The passion they have for teaching is contagious. You'll get a sense of that shortly. Uh, I hope we can convey how impactful a simple problem-solving exercise can be and encourage you to give it a shot with your teams. Lead them in discussion, encourage them to reason out loud, make them feel comfortable to say, I don't know, to be wrong, as you may spark that same joy in another young learner. So with that being said, let's get started. All right, guys. 62-year-old woman with a history of hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and anemia presented to the emergency room with weakness and fatigue. Wonderful. Um, hello, everyone. So, so pleased to be here. I feel that we got such a warm introduction, probably, that it would probably benefit us to just leave right now and have this sort of aura of being very good at what we do. But let's go on this roller coaster of a ride. Maybe I'll just comment briefly on this first aliquot of information, because I don't think there's too much progress we can make. Um, but I'll just start by saying, when you're solving any problem in clinical medicine, it's really important to have a good frame of the problem, which we refer to as a problem representation. The problem representation includes the epidemiology, like what's relevant, the tempo or duration of symptoms, and the clinical syndrome. Here, we don't have the tempo. We have some of the epidemiologic data, and then we have a clinical syndrome of weakness and fatigue. The issue with fatigue is that that DDX can be super broad. I woke, I woke up this morning fatigued. And you can see <laughs> I have a venti coffee from Starbucks um, to try to wake me up and make me more alert. And now we have weakness too. But the problem with weakness, that DDX is very broad. What do I mean by that? There is weakness and then there is weakness, meaning the sensation of weakness without the actual decrease in power of the muscles versus true objective weakness where on physical exam, you as a clinician can actually detect weak muscles. 
context is everything in clinical reasoning. In the outpatient setting, 90% of the time, weakness is not true decrease in motor strength, but rather another problem like anemia this patient has, like heart failure, COPD, depression, so many different um, causes of the sensation of weakness. So what's going to be a very important branch point here is to determine whether this patient truly has weakness or not. Because if they truly have weakness, then we have to try to localize a lesion along the neuromuscular axis from the brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerve, junction, and muscle. But it's very early to, to anchor on that. So we're going to need much more data. And one other thing that Robbie taught me with weakness, if this patient says, I feel full body weakness at rest, then it's unlikely to be a decrease in muscle strength, as opposed to, doc, I can't comb my hair anymore. I can't get up from a chair anymore. It's too difficult. That would prioritize true weakness. Robbie, anything to add here or should we get some more data? I would say, imagine if the diagnosis is locked in a secret box in a, in a freezer in a corner store in a magical city somewhere. All you know so far, all you know, all the progress you've made is all you see the entirety of planet Earth. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and the diagnosis remains locked in a freezer in a corner store in some magical city somewhere. And hopefully we'll outline the progress we make, how close we get, we'll identify the city and then maybe the street and then the corner store and then the freezer and then the box. And right now, all we've done is landed on planet Earth with the wonderful caveats that, uh, that Reza just told you. All right, let's, let's zoom in a little bit. <laughs> so she reports feeling crummy for the past six months. She noted unintentional weight loss with her prior weight being close to 400 pounds. She said that she had intermittent sweats at night, but would occasionally take her temperature the next morning and it was normal. She was seen at a neighboring hospital two months prior, and that's where she was found to be anemic. She started iron repletion therapy. The night before this admission, she had diarrhea and noted a small amount of blood on the tissue when she wiped. Her last colonoscopy was four years ago and was only significant for one polyp. Pertinent negatives, she denied chest pain, shortness of breath, rash, myalgias, or any joint symptoms. And then her medications on admission were atorvastatin, aspirin, glosartin, hydrochlorothiazide, ferrosulfate, and famotidine. Oopsie. All right. The temperature is ramping up a little bit. Um, you know, maybe, um, uh, maybe I can just reflect on the data here and then see what I left. I leave over for Reza to add. And, you know, um, I do, I'd venture to say that even though we didn't have the time course in Aliquot 1, you might have predicted that it was subacute or chronic. And the reason is that I have yet to meet uh, a patient who comes into the emergency room with one day of weakness and fatigue. Weakness and fatigue are symptoms that patients usually allow themselves a little bit of, of flexibility uh, before they present, meaning that they entertain a whole slew of possibilities, um, even if the disease begins acutely before they entertain a sinister malignant cause. For example, if I woke up fatigued tomorrow and I actually have a disease process driving it, I might get a venti Starbucks coffee for a day, two, three, four, or five uh, before I eventually present the care. Um, and so some conditions um, are actually tightly linked with certain um, clinical presentations. And so here, the time course isn't so surprising. What does uh, profoundly alter the landscape is the presence of weight loss. Now you have to be careful. Before you entertain the possibilities of weight loss, you have to have to make sure that you aren't misled. And there are two ways that you can be misled. First, um, don't you just wish that things in medicine were standardized? The units of labs, the Hounsfield, the units of labs, the heights, weights, all that stuff reported in all sorts of different numbers. And I bet I'm missing other prominent examples. Then the problem with weight loss is the scales are so different that um, you may not be dealing with weight loss, but rather the problem with scales. 
that is a problem you can easily overcome, I think. Um, but the harder problem is how do you know that weight loss is not something you need to celebrate? With uh, the rising obesity epidemic, a lot of patients are, are trying to lose weight and you may be inclined to celebrate that with them. Of course, that has to occur in the background of concern of all the sinister causes of weight loss. And uh, there's this fancy smancy rule that I'm gonna share with you. It's very complicated, so bear with me. If your instinct is to high five your patient when they tell you the story of their weight loss, high five them. If your instinct is to be like, uh oh, there's something going on here, you're probably dealing with weight loss. It's called the high five rule. You can Google it on that account. Um, and here, there's no way I want to high five this patient. I mean, I want to high five this patient because I love me patients, the COVID elbow, I suppose. But here, um, there's night sweats, patients decline in energy. There's probably worsening anemia going on than the inclination to start iron therapy. So I, I worry that we've established two things. We've now confirmed the time course is subacute, and we're probably dealing with true pathological weight loss, given the accompanying symptoms that um, force your hand to stay down and not high five the patient. I'll stop there and um, leave the rest for Reza to, to mop up after my mess. <laughs> Robbie, there's never anything to, to mop up after you speak, my dear friend. And I, I, I really have little more to add. You might say here that the intermittent sweats at night, it's nice to clarify what this means. It's very rare for someone to say they're sweating at night. Is it to the point where the patient wakes up and actually has to change their clothing? That would prioritize an inflammatory cause of weight loss. Right now, Robbie, I think we're getting signals. I don't know how strong these signals are, but the weight loss, intermittent night sweats, and um, potentially fever sort of prioritizing a subacute inflammatory process. I'm not going to yet unleash our approach to inflammation, but at this aliquot, that's what I'm most concerned for. And this sort of amount of bleeding that she's wiping on the tissue paper, this prioritizes something like a hemorrhoid. It'll be important to know if the patient has constipation. And this is also going to be very important that, that this patient is on iron therapy when it's time to interpret the ferritin value as we're trying to create a case of inflammation. I'm going to pause there until we get more data. So I don't waste cognitive energy. I don't have much energy to waste today. Oh, I forgot. Can I say one quick thing? I'm just on that sentence. That was, I think a very powerful sentence. So I want, I want, I want you to check your reaction to the crowd. When I say this, the patient was hypotensive and therefore given fluids full stop end of story. Now you would look at me like, what? That's it. I, that is no different than saying the patient is anemic. So it was given iron. Those are exactly the same. Meaning that you, you, you give non-specific, non-specific, non-definitive therapy to a condition. So I'm really tracking this hypotension that was given fluids because it's a red flag. No anemia should just be given iron without clarity on the mechanism and the cause. And so I think that's a big, big, big thing, thing to track. So please don't, don't just give your hypotensive patient fluids and call it iron seal delivered. There's a lot more to this other You guys are wizards. I could listen to you all day. Um, here have the physical exam and then some basic data. I'll go through the physical exam first. And then if you guys want to break to kind of talk through that, we can do that, or I'll just continue through with the labs. So the vitals were significant for a temperature of 101.3, respiratory rate of 22, heart rate of 104, blood pressure of 95 over 52. Her weight was 336 pounds and she was saturating 94% on room air. She was awake, alert, pleasant, no distress. Her HEENT exam was normal. No lymphadenopathy or JVD, no increased work of breathing, lungs were clear. She was mildly tachycardic, normal S1, S2, no murmurs. Abdominal exam, normal bowel sounds, soft, non-descended, non-tender, no organomegaly. On MSK, her extremities were warm, pulses two plus throughout, no redness, warmth, or swelling. She did have mild bilateral lower extremity edema. Her neuro exam was normal, 
And her skin exam was no rash or bruises. Want me to keep going? Okay. Um, CMP, sodium was 133, K 4.4, chloride 104, bicarb 18, BUN 21, creatinine 1.95, glucose of 111, albumin was 2.0, calcium 8.2, Billy 1.2, Alkfos 132, AST 73, and ALT 37. And then on CBC, her white count was 3.5, hemoglobin of 9 with an MCV of 70.5. Platelets were 214, and on the differential, it was uh, neutrophilic predominant. And then she also had a chest x-ray and a UA that didn't reveal anything. Very, very helpful, Kevin. Thank you. And you're presenting this at a terrific pace for us to actually be able to dissect this data. And, and I'll leave the labs and imaging for Robbie to comment on, and I'll focus on the physical exam. The temperature of 101.3 is a very important data point here. Fever is the most specific marker of inflammation. Make no mistakes. There are other reasons why someone might have hyperthermia. For example, if they're exposed to a very warm environment and they're unable to thermoregulate, um, or they are, for example, having hot flashes. But I don't think we need to consider those two. I think we have to interpret this fever as a marker of inflammation. Why? Because the patient's also having weight loss, night sweats, subacute fatigue and weakness. So I take that temperature and I convert it in my mind to inflammation, the same way I would convert jaundice to hyperbilirubinemia. And once you have inflammation, um, the mnemonic that we like to use is the I, capital I, made mnemonic. And maybe Robbie can put that in the chat um, for, for the audience, but the capital I stands for infectious process. M, malignancy, A, autoimmune, D, drugs, and E, endocrinopathy. The reason the I is capitalized is that you must rule out an infectious process at time point zero. Why? Because autoimmune malignant processes require immunosuppression. And if you miss an infection, then all of a sudden, the infection can go haywire. But we can make a lot of progress on this. And, and once you, so let's, let's think about infection. The fact that this is subacute to chronic eliminates typical bacterial infections like S. pneumo, H. flu, the run-of-the-mill stuff you see in the hospital that leads to fever. If it is an infectious process, the tempo of illness prioritizes an atypical infection. Whether it's an atypical mycobacterial infection, fungal infection, or parasitic infection. The heart rate being 105 just follows the rule of, uh, I believe it's Leibermeister or Liebermeister. For every one degree rise in the temperature, you expect an eight beat rise in the heart rate. You look at that respiratory rate and you have to be a little cautious. Um, one, I don't feel that we do a great job of actually identifying what the respiratory rate, everyone is 16 or 20. Um, so <laughs> if this respiratory rate is true, then you wonder, is there something going on in the parenchyma or not? which would then say, is there pathology in the lung that's leading to inflammation, causing the fever, causing the weakness, causing the fatigue, causing the weight loss? The blood pressure is also 
I think lower than I would expect. For example, when you have someone who weighs 90 pounds, for instance, their blood pressure systolics may be 90, but um, this patient weighs 336 pounds. So I would imagine they would have a higher pressure to perfuse their organs. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they have a history of hypertension in that one line. So this, this blood pressure is very concerning. And I want to know, is there evidence of end organ damage or not? I'll leave that for Robbie to um, comment on. The other thing I'm doing here is because it's subacute, you have to consider endocarditis, which can present similar to this. So I look at the cardiovascular exam, there's no murmur. Basically, I'm looking at the exam to see if there's any clues where I can zoom in on inflammation of that specific organ. And I don't find any. So now I'm going to pass the mic to Robbie to comment on the labs and anything else he wants to comment on in the physical exam. I just love listening to you. I also just realized the last two times I noticed that you actually physically passed me the mic. It's like really cool. Like I'm, now I'm gonna like be ready for it. <laughs> <Grab> it <back. laughs> so, so Mike received my dear friend. Um, and focusing on the labs, I'll tell you that the um, that there's there's an there's a um, often a difficulty in localizing using labs to eliminate GI tract, but I think here there's a very good case for it. And there's two laboratory data points that localize the luminal GI tract. But ask yourself, like what test do I usually send that tells blood test that I usually send that tells me there's a problem in the GI lumen? It's nothing on the basic metabolic panel. The liver enzymes certainly don't localize to the a GI lumen, they localize to the liver. The CBC, what connection does that have with the GI lumen? But there's actually a couple of clues here. The first is the microcytic anemia. The microcytic anemia is defined as the MCV being less than 80 along with the anemia. And that, while it has a nerdy and broad differential diagnosis, the simple approach is, is it iron deficiency or thalassemia? Now, um, if we go beyond those two things, we'll hit the esoteria of microcytic anemia, but I wanna tell you that the operating permit is one of those two things. Thalassemia is a congenital condition and iron deficiency is often acquired. So a prior MCV that's higher than this prioritizes one over the other. Other subtle clues that you can use are the RDW. Thalassemia is an incredibly uh, simple disease. You make a large amount of small cells that are all the same size. So if there's a large distribution width in the red blood cells that tells you that you're not making cells of very similar sizes and prioritizes iron deficiency, so the iron studies would be definitive. So the base rate here, along with the, with the high RDW, tells you this patient is iron deficient. And iron deficiency in older, non-menstruating adults localizes to GI blood loss as the first pass workup. But again, like microcytic anemia has an incredibly broad and nerdy differential diagnosis. So you look at an MCV like that along with the hemoglobin, you're like, ah, there's probably blood loss going on in the GI tract. Probably. Now I told you there were two tests that localized the GI tract, right? Here's the other one. This connection is much looser, but certainly something to entertain. Albumin. Um, the most common cause of albuminemia, hypoalbuminemia, is low-grade inflammation, malnutrition, uh, like we have here. So could the fever six months of anorexia align with the albumin of 2.0? Absolutely. Is there another cause to entertain? Also, yes. When you're entertaining the approach to hypoalbuminemia, you have to consider synthesis, which again requires a non-inflammatory nutritional milieu, which we talked about, and that is one potential cause. The other is hepatic function. The liver is required to synthesize albumin. But you can also lose albumin. You can lose albumin most commonly in the kidney and most rarely in the blood vessels. How do you know that you know, there's no kidney loss here? The UA shows no proteinuria. Uh, so the albumin is not being lost in the urine. You can Google um, esoteric syndromes where albumin actually leaks out into the blood vessels. But more commonly than that, it actually is lost in the GI tract. So while the combination of fever, not eating well, and low albumin suggests that hypoalbuminemia is cachectic in origin, the combination of edema, lower extremity edema, hypoalbuminemia, and microcytic anemia tells you, wait, 
Am I dealing with the, the rare possibility that this albumin doesn't represent the usual thing, but represents the possibility of proteins losing neuropathy, which is basically the GI equivalent of nephrotic syndrome. Now, why do I say that? I say that because it's another subtle hint that, that we need to look inside the lumen. Finally, you know, there's, there's a lot of L's and H's, but I think focusing on the most important, the most important other one is we have a leukopenia. And that leukopenia often in the setting of uh, a fever represents leukopenia of sepsis NOS. And it, instead of boring you with an exhaustive list of causes of leukopenia, I'll arm you with a checklist of three things. Sepsis, HIV, and arbo infections. Arbo infections are viruses and bacteria that are mosquito-borne or tick-borne. And of course, drugs can do it. Autoimmune diseases like lupus can do it. Congenital conditions can do it. But the focus initially is, oh, my patient's leukopenic. Are they septic? Do they have HIV? And are there arbo infections? So to summarize, the albumin and the microcytic anemia are telling us there might be something going on in the luminal GI tract. And that leukopenia in parallel tells us, hey, is this patient infected in, in a, with sepsis physiology? Make sure you have an HIV test. And wonder, could this syndrome be ultimately compatible with an arbo infection? Um, uh, the x-ray looks great. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass the mic back to you, Kevin, to give us more. Thanks, Robbie. Uh, and thanks for taking us down the, the lazy river of the blood <laughs> system there. I literally had the goosebumps when you started talking about microcytic anemia. So thanks for that. Let's go to Alcott 4. All right. So the patient was initially admitted to the MICU and shout out to our MICU. That's been my favorite rotation so far. Um, for concern of sepsis, she was empirically started on IV antibiotics. She received IV fluids with improvement in her blood pressure and renal function. She was deemed stable for transfer to the general medical floor. And prior to her transfer, she got a non-contrast CT of her chest and abdomen. And that showed a mass-like thickening of six centimeter segment of the proximal transverse colon with no surrounding fat stranding or inflammatory changes. There was a well-circumscribed soft tissue mass lesion within the right hemipelvis, four by seven by seven and the right inguinal region nine by four by three. These likely represent enlarged lymph nodes. There's additional enlarged lymph nodes in the right inguinal and portohepatis region and borderline enlarged left supraclavicular lymph node. It was also noted to be hepatomegaly. I'll toss the mic back. I, uh, I feel like I rambled quite a bit um, in the last alpha, so I'll actually pass the mic, <laughs> Reza, uh, to start off the reflection and uh, um, happy to take it back anytime. Thanks so much, Robbie. Um, <laughs> so this is really important. We painted a great picture for subacute to chronic inflammation. And now we knew there wasn't too many symptoms to help localize the site of pathology on exam and labs, very nonspecific. But now we have our pivot point in our case. What do I mean by pivot point? Meaning findings that are likely signal and should serve as our center of gravity. And Robbie, for me here, it's the mass in the proximal transverse colon coupled with the lymphadenopathy that Kevin presented and the hepatomegaly. Almost you can combine all these together, lymphadenopathy, hepatomegaly, and the mass. And the question is, is the mass the reason, the primary site of inflammation that now has become disseminated and widespread involving the lymph nodes and involving the liver? So let's talk about hepatomegaly. Hepatomegaly can result from congestion, for example, in someone with decompensated heart failure, from inflammation, for example, in someone with a viral hepatitis, or from infiltration, or from infiltration. Here, when you take the hepatomegaly, hepatomegaly in the context of diffuse lymphadenopathy and a mass in the proximal transverse colon, it's hard not to prioritize an infiltrative process. 
And things that might infiltrate the liver include sarcoid, amyloid, and lymphoma. Um, and can you remind me, Kevin, what was the platelet count on the CBC? It was 214. Okay. Because when I said lymphoma, automatically, I wanted to see if there was a thrombocytopenia or not. You still can have a normal platelet count and still have lymphoma. Um, now, let me just step back for a second and just talk about lymphadenopathy and then pass the mic to Robbie to sort of share his thinking and fill in the gaps for me. But with lymphadenopathy, you want to ask the question, is it diffuse or is it local? You can easily imagine if you have cellulitis of the leg, you get inguinal lymphadenopathy and there's nothing to be concerned about. Here, we're more concerned for a diffuse lymphadenopathy. When you have diffuse lymphadenopathy, then you're back in the same mnemonic that we shared earlier, infection, malignancy, autoimmune. If you ask a question, what autoimmune processes are associated with diffuse lymphadenopathy? Primarily lupus, Sjogren's, RA, but we have to also consider the mass in the proximal transverse colon. When you incorporate the mass in the proximal transverse colon, it really does prioritize a malignancy. And if you ask what kind of malignancies can present with diffuse lymphadenopathy and involve the colon, it could be a primary adenocarcinoma. Remember, this patient had a colonoscopy four years prior that showed one polyp. Could it be that they missed something in that colonoscopy? It could be. Or could it be that we're dealing with an aggressive malignancy that's growing rapidly, which would include um, something like a lymphoma. So Robbie, I, I don't want to anchor here. So I would love to um, pass the mic. And I'm just realizing we do have like this very specific type of lymph node. Maybe I can give to you to comment on this left supraclavicular lymph node. But I think bottom line is this, we started with a subacute process, inflammation. Now we're zooming in to our city maybe of mass lymphadenopathy and likely infiltration of the liver. I don't remember if the alquas was a little bit elevated because you often see that when you have infiltration of the liver. Um, but that's sort of what I'm thinking about right now. I'm right there with you, my friend. And I tell you that I think it's a special privilege to be um, an internist, family medicine doctor, pediatrician, um, because we're often tasked with solving diseases that don't show up anywhere. You know, think about what I struggle to this day with type 1 treatment because there's nothing that I can see in the patient's body that helps me figure it out. When a disease is silly enough to condense into a mass, all you have to do is take it out and look at it. And you'll be like, oh, I recognize you. It's much harder to solve problems that are diffuse, that don't coalesce. And so quite simply, if you look at this under histopathology and culture, you will probably find the answer. This is a little bit of a practical lens. And so the question is, what tools does an internist have to diagnose disseminated lymphadenopathy before removal of any tissue, usually the best quote unquote lymph node, which we can talk about what the best is. And I would remind you that disseminated lymphadenopathy from the infection category is the mononucleosis viruses. So HIV comes up again, EBV, CMV, syphilis, RPR is in order, and all the granulomatous infections, which are filtered by epidemiology, TB, histo, et cetera. So if you're thinking infection and lymphadenopathy, make sure you consider the serological workup for mononucleosis infections, syphilis, and granulomatous diseases filtered by epidemiology. The only autoimmune disease that you can test by blood that shows up prominently as, an, uh, as a lymph node syndrome is lupus. There are many other ones, but the, the blood tests for them are not that good. 
You can also do blood tests to help you gauge the probability of cancer. An LDH through the roof might prioritize that, but cancer usually, and an SPEP maybe, um, cancer is usually histological analysis. You also want to review your medications to make sure you're not dealing with a medication of uh, causing diffuse lymphadenopathy. So this conversation just parallels Reza's. He showed, he taught us what diffuse lymphadenopathy is and what are the causes. And I'd layer on, what is your job before you actually take it out? Your job is mononucleosis infections, RPR. Um, granulotus uh, testing based on epidemiology, consider an ANA, consider an LDH and an SPEP, MedRec. And then the truth is you probably would need to take this out. So what would I do next? I think the granulomatous infections are a conversation to have with this patient about soil exposure, milk exposure, all sorts of things that may allow um, uh, entry of granulomatous organisms into the body. And then, um, uh, and then talking to the right people who may help you um, uncover this disease, which again is silly enough to coalesce into one area where it would readily identify itself likely to a histopathologist. I think Robbie just totally laid the foundation for the next aliquot. So <laughs> let's move on. Aliquot five. So on the floor, the patient was spiking a daily fever up to 103 degrees. She was mostly unaware of this, meaning she didn't realize she was febrile. All the cultures in the ICU were negative and her antibiotics were stopped with no change in the fever curve. Our GI friends performed a colonoscopy that showed a necrotic and ulcerated appearing lesion in the mid transverse colon. It may represent a primary colon cancer versus metastatic lesion from another primary site versus severe colonic ischemia. There were no other lesions seen throughout. Her chemistries demonstrated slowly rising LFTs with her ALKFAS rising to over 400 and her AST, ALT to 115 and 70 respectively. She also developed worsening pancytopenia. Her hemoglobin dropped to the low sevens her white count dropped to 1.2 and platelets dropped to 95. HIV antibody was negative. CRP was 159. Ferritin was 4,795. A quantitative immunoglobulin showed a mildly elevated IgA. There was no monoclonal spike on SPAP. An ANA screen was negative. Serum rheumatoid factor came back at 1,171. All right. Um... I feel like I spoke a lot last time, so I'm giving them my thought. <laughs> and the negative ANA uh, rules out lupus. Thank you for listening. <laughs> go for it, go for it, please. Okay, two kinds. So, you know, something else that's really helpful to consider here is solid cancers generally don't cause significant inflammation. There are some exceptions like renal cell carcinoma, but if you're dealing with an isolated solid cancer, inflammation is usually not part of that illness group. So here we have a large mass in the transverse colon and it's, it's, it wasn't there on the colonoscopy, assuming that colonoscopy like completely evaluated the colon appropriately. So this is rapidly growing. So again, if this is malignancy, you have to consider lymphoma. And now you have something that is giving you a clue that what was causing that patomegaly indeed is infiltration. Why? Because you have primarily a cholestatic pattern of liver injury with that alphas being elevated. Yes, you can send a GGT to be sure, but with that AST and ALT being elevated, the diffuse lymphadenopathy, it truly prioritizes something infiltrating the liver. But here we have something that's fascinating, which is the pancytopenia. And maybe what I'll do here is actually pass the mic to Robbie to sort of, to sort of like, how can we explain pancytopenia with our concern for likely malignancy being lymphoma? Though I agree, you can't have granulomatous 
infections. Um, and if I really push myself, Robbie, to think about granulomas that cause mass, I have to use analogic reasoning, thinking about the lung, like tuberculoma, histoplasmoma, like literally any fungoma can lead to a mass, but I'm not as familiar as those causing problems in the GI tract. And we haven't been given clues to suggest mycobacterial or fungal infection. And it'll be awfully odd. Those usually leave their imprint in the lung, the way you actually contract those infections. So I am prioritizing cancer. And I want to ask you, Robbie, how can you link that to the pancytopenia to see if we can make even more progress? I love that. I think, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the overlap of malignancy and pancytopenia is quite extensive. The instinct may be to say that um, the malignancy is liquid and it is either gone or involves the bone marrow. Um, liquid malignancy that is lives in the bone marrow that causes pancytopenia would be leukemia, like AML, and one that has gone to the bone marrow would be lymphoma going um, to the bone marrow. But you know, cancers tell the stories in much fancier ways. CLL, for example, can cause an autoimmune, um, usually monocytopenia, but also bi and pancytopenia. CLL is notorious for causing autoantibodies against hematological cell lines. So a mechanism would be peripheral destruction by autoimmune destruction. Um, of course, it's important to recognize that patients with cancer also have uh, uh, impaired uh, desire to eat and may have uh, um, nutritional causes of pancytopenia like B12 or copper. Um, in a case, though, where the malignancy appears hectic and associated with the ferritin this high, you might consider invoking the least common mechanism of all, but the fanciest of all. And it's called, I'm going to try to say this real fast, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Oh, HLH, uh, <laughs> hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. The reason I try to say it fast is because it is almost... Um, um, almost a little embarrassing to say it. It's like the uh, CPS um, clinical problem solving, like kind of newish um, uh, thing that shows up in the NGM CPS cases. Um, but I do think we're actually recognizing it more and more often um, as a consequence of, uh, of cancer. And it's important to think about it because it has actually a unique uh, treatment profile in addition to treating cancer. So if you're worried about cancer um, causing pancytopenias, most commonly it's direct malignant involvement of the bone marrow. Um, it can be nutritional, it can be autoimmune destruction, that with CLL is the most common, but with a ferritin this high, a fever this high, the liver this big, um, you might consider uh, HLH. It is one of the very few times where inpatient triglyceride testing may be indicated. All right, back to you. Excellent, guys. So for aliquot 6, we have some pathology. From the colonoscopy, it showed the histological findings are suggestive of ischemic colitis with ulceration. These findings combined with the endoscopic appearance raise the possibility of something called mass-forming ischemic colitis. She continued to spike fevers and was feeling fatigued. There was no localizing signs or symptoms. All infectious cultures remained negative. Her D-dimer was 4.31. Fibrinogen on admission was 279, but then dropped to 150. And haptoglobin was 332. So uh, maybe I can just talk about um, the, the dimension that she's still spiking fevers. And I, I'd say that, um, you know, the, the journey that we go on in trying to solve a problem of a fever begins with prioritizing infection. But the longer the fevers persist without a definitive answer, the lower likelihood that you have a pyogenic bacterial infection. Now, that's, um, that's predicated on the fevers remaining the only problem. Often, if there is a pyogenic bacterial infection, the patient's fevers will get worse, but their clinical syndrome will also worsen. So... Um, as the fevers go on without marked worsening, the spotlight moves away from fever to the other two notorious causes of fever, which is autoimmunity and malignancy. And here's a deeper truth. The deeper truth is that there's only a few autoimmune diseases that cause a very prominent fever. There's not that many of them that present as a fever-centered syndrome. 
lupus can do it. But most notoriously, I would say, is the set of vasculitis. So vasculitis is important to, to entertain. And um, you can come in. Um, and in the, um, uh, in the consequence of the ischemic colitis, you might be wondering, hey, are we dealing with an aggressive vasculitic phenomenon? But um, I would say more important than that is the spotlight is really as Reza suspected very earlier on is to wonder about malignancy. So I think fevers that go unsolved for this long make infection much less likely and make malignancy much, less, much more likely. So Reza, I'm in a space where I think uh, tissue is the issue. And I'd be curious um, how, what, if there's other data here that you took um, um, some significance from. Not at all, Robbie. I was on MD-Calc um, just putting in the H score for HLH. And this patient's H score, which is... Um, a calculator you can use to predict the probability of HLH is around 214 points or 95%. So even if we um, have HLH, which I think we're concerned for, especially with the fibrinogen going down, you can send a soluble IL-2 and end case uh, cell activity. But then you have to ask the question, why HLH? You can't just stop at HLH in an adult. Why HLH? And I think infection is less likely and we're back to malignancy. And the most common malignancy, B-cell lymphoma. This malignancy isn't your indolent CLL. Whatever it is, it's aggressive, rapidly growing. And um, one of the most common sites of B-cell lymphoma, I believe, is the, uh, the lumen. So I think tissue is the issue. Um, and we have to be worried about HLA. So at this point, you, you want to get your um, hematology oncologist involved. And ultimately, you want to treat what might be driving the HLH, but we can't know until we evaluate the, the tissue, the histopathology of the mass. Let's move on to Ellicott 7. So the soluble IL-2 receptor was 14,220. EBV PCR came back mildly elevated at 430. The patient did get a bone marrow biopsy. It showed normal cellular marrow with trilineage maturation, no evidence of malignancy. Her ferritin increased to 9,605. Maybe I'll just make a quick comment before we get the next aliquot. We used to be taught that there's only four causes of hyperferritinemia, like to this degree, and that's histoplasmosis, adult onset cell disease, hemochromatosis, and HLH. But Andrew Olson, and I'll look for the article so I can share it with all of you, they debunked this myth. Anything that leads to inflammation can lead to hyperferritinemia. So you can't use that as an anchor to say this is one of four possible causes. So, um, that's all I wanted to comment on. I'm still very concerned for HLH. Despite not seeing hemophagocytosis on the bone marrow biopsy, I think we need to know that the tissue of, that, uh, of the mass and see if there's an underlying lymphoma. I would send an LDH to see if that's elevated, which can be a surrogate of increased cell turnover that can occur with malignancy. And you might say, okay, I'll actually just leave it at that until we get the next alibi. Um, So we are about at the end, guys. Um, I'm gonna ask you to put your nickel down don't go yet. Um, <laughs> you guys are definitely on the right track. What would you want to do next to confirm the diagnosis? And then I'll have you put your nickel down and tell us what you guys think is going on. And maybe something I can ask to clarify, um, Kevin, yeah. did they actually biopsy the mass that it showed? Because I, I think I'm, it's, did, did, was that the biopsy of the mass that showed the ischemic colitis? Correct. I see. Okay. So this is an important uh, point because I guess I was under the impression that the mass had yet to be biopsied. So it seems like they actually studied the mass for malignancy, correct? And there was no yeah, evidence correct. of that based on, and it's sort of, you can say, well, maybe there was a diagnostic error, but it's sort of hard to not actually get the pathology if it's a mass and you're biopsying the mass and you can see the mass. So, so Robbie, when we, you know, we've been texting each other. Um, I think we have to consider other possibilities that can lead to ischemia and ulceration. 
Um, maybe I can hand the mic to you. Like what else can, what else is on your DDX for ischemic ulceration, lymphadenopathy, um, hepatomegaly and HLH? Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, this is again, you, this is again, the concept of what an internist can do. And the truth is that you have diagnosed HLH, but as Reza said, HLH is no different than diagnosing eosinophilia. It's a unique marker of inflammation and it shapes the landscape of analysis of inflammation and skews it to malignancy. And the rate of malignancy in HLH is about 50%. The rate of autoimmune disease is 20%, of which lupus is the vast majority. And the infections are the other 30%. I hope my numbers added up, but in case they did, forgive me. Um, and the infections, there's really essentially two types of infections that result in HLH, the granulomatous ones, of which there's no epidemiology here, and then as was tested, the mononucleosis ones. We've ruled out two of the three prominent mononucleosis-like infections, HIV and EPV, with the EBV PCR not being sufficient here to cause this degree of inflammation. So I say the question is, is this CMV-induced hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or is this a malignancy that I haven't quite picked up yet? And I would say the most notorious malignancy that is often hard to diagnose is Hodgkin's lymphoma because you're looking for those small reed Sternberg cells amidst a storm of inflammation, but also Castleman's disease. So I think the next step is to get a CMV PCR and then get more tissue. And how you get more tissue is a, is a tough conversation with all the, uh, all the uh, consultative services. That's where I'm at, Res. <laughs> All right. Bravo, guys. Bravo. Um, a biopsy of the right inguinal mass revealed classic Hodgkin's lymphoma of the mixed cellularity type, with the final diagnosis then being Hodgkin's lymphoma with HLH. <laughs> Incredible, guys. The claps are my favorite part. They make me blush so hard. I, I, I want to mute myself. So, I found... so I got it. I got a couple of maybe comments and then, and then a couple of questions to you guys. And so, uh, it, it, as I told you, so, so I had this case two weeks ago and uh, it was, beside the fact that it is, it is a really interesting case, um, it, it really brings up a couple of thoughts with me that, that, that I want to ask your guys' opinion about. And, and, and one of them is about, it really is about the time course of diagnosis and so we often, and I know you guys often hear cases and, and, and they're sort of packaged at the end. And yet when you actually face a case like this, this, this how do you get through it is it really becomes something real because, because it took time to get to the end of this, to, to get to the end of this. And so I wanted your thoughts on that. The other piece is, is sort of this issue of diagnostic certainty and, and I put in a plug for another podcast that I listened to this week, which is Adam Rodman's podcast on Bedside Rounds, where he actually, the, the topic this week was diagnostic certainty and how do we do this? I'm going to tell you that in cases like this, there's often a lot of disagreement amongst people. And there's even disagreement about the final diagnosis because Reza, you would say, you know, it, that, that, you know, the chance that this was HLH was very high, which is what I thought. And yet, the hematologist actually didn't think this was HLH for a very long time, even after the soluble IL-2 receptor came back positive because they wanted the tissue so much. So I'm just interested in your comments on those two things. Wow. Um, first of all, thank you, Kevin, for presenting such an um, incredible case. And I'm interested to know what happened to the patient. And maybe I can comment on, I'll just share my comments and then let, I'm trying to divide everything and then let Rob just share his comments. Um, <laughs> My comment is regarding the diagnostic certainty and like what happens when there is disagreements between folks. And I often say this to my team, that medicine is a great practice. 
It's a it's not black and white. It's rare that something is black and white in medicine. When it is, we know what's right and what's wrong. For example, a patient who's septic needs empiric antibiotics for what might be the infectious site. That's black and white. How many times have you been on rounds where you have someone that has an AKI, you're not sure, sure, are they decompensated heart failure? Or do they need a little bit of volume to perfuse the kidneys? So you don't know, do you diurese? Do you give IV fluids? Who knows? You choose one and then you follow up the result and that helps clinch what was the most likely diagnosis. So I just want to say that it's very rare that any, I actually get nervous when people are too confident. They don't leave any room for any kind of self-doubt. I'm not saying that you should have so much doubt that you're crippled to make a decision, but I think you have to be open to multiple possibilities. The problem that happens when someone is too confident, you get a delay in diagnosis. And I, I've been there, you know, where I've had a thought, a consultant has had another thought and I'll share. I'm even thinking of examples where I was wrong. So when I talked to the consultant and they were able to break down why they're thinking what they're thinking, it put me at ease. But there are moments where I feel quite strong about a certain diagnosis, a certain treatment plan that I like to talk to the person in person or I seek a second opinion. And this is a huge recommendation to all the junior faculty. All those residents you work with, they eventually become fellows. And then after fellowship, they eventually become attendings. I literally am on rounds texting my former roommates, my former residents and curbsiding them on, you know, on the fly. So I don't have a great answer what happens, but I think you can always seek a second opinion. And you also should always have some self-doubt, whether you're a consultant or the primary team, but um, very difficult situation. I will stop rambling. You see guys, this caffeine has really hit my head now. And I just want to talk really fast and forever. Just, I wanted to add something real quick, President. You just highlighted one of my favorite points. And I think I heard it on one. A guest you guys had recently said, never reason in isolation. So always reason with our team. And that's, that's the reality of medicine. So thanks for sharing that. That, that is such a great point. I know that um, I, I want Robbie to share his thoughts, but I have to just share something with you guys really quickly. This is unbelievable. And um, just, can you guys see this? <laughs> this is a patient who was somnolent and came with this finding me. I said, do we need to give this patient amphotericin for mucormycosis consulted ID? We gave the patient amphotericin. Guess what happened? ENT came by. They were able to scrape all this off and reveal normal mucosa. This was fecal <laughs> material. It was fecal material. I was wrong. So um, anyways, Robbie, Mike to you, my friend. Oh, hey, I have nothing to add. That was just your magic. I have uh, no, nothing to contribute, but to enjoy that reflection. So really quickly to give you guys some follow-up. So, so the patient, uh, the, the patient actually was, was ultimately treated was got a lot of antibiotics at one point, but ultimately treated with some steroids and, and got remarkably better very quickly with some steroids and the patient's gone on now. They've gone through their first cycle of chemotherapy and is actually doing great. And so, uh, I got my fingers crossed that, that, that there's going to be a happy ending to the case. I know the patient is as of yesterday was, was still in the hospital and, and now on our oncology floor and doing well. I know we're running out of time and I want to give these guys a chance to, to wrap up something that they're doing. Um, and then in the interest of time, we have some teaching points we can go through for those that can stick around. Um, but if you wouldn't mind advancing a few. Did I ask, hi, this is Alan. Can I ask you a question? Do we have time for <laughs> one, one more? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Rich. So I just was a, a phenomenal. Thank you. It was really great, really, really educational, really a lot of fun. And you got, and early on in both of your discussions, you brought up the the inflammatory part and noted sarcoid, noted lymphoma. 
I'm an ID doc. If I would have at that moment said, so well, why don't we just go right and do this? Even though there were all these clues focused on the bowel, an easy biopsy procedure was readily available. How would you have responded to that approach? I think that's a, I, I apologize if I uh, um, uh, respond uh, inaccurately because I think your audio was a little choppy, but in hearing um, uh, pieces of your, uh, your question, I would say that I'm always a big proponent of uh, when a disease coalesces into a mass, take it out. I think it's that simple. Um, of course, there are exceptions to it. And I think we review those times where um, serology supersedes the need for tissue, but I uh, completely agree with that. And you'll hear case after case after case where we take a long time to take something out. Um, and I think there are a lot of systems barriers in that place, but I think the general clinical reasoning principle is if a disease is kind enough to you to coalesce into a tissue, take it out and it'll declare itself. Again, thank you guys so much. It was really great. All right, Reza, Robbie, I don't know if you guys want to briefly talk about um, what you guys have going on with everyone here. Waiting to see if Reza admits before I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so folks, uh, we, uh, you know, at the Clinical Problem Solvers, we've been doing this for two and a half years now. And um, the, the truth is we've, uh, we've relied tremendously um, on um, uh, people like yourselves who promote our work. And this is another way uh, to get more involved more intimately. So we, Reza and I, um, feature on the main podcast um, once every um, other month. But we do a lot of work on Patreon, and Patreon is a way where you can um, deliberately uh, engage with us in many ways and, and, and sponsor our work and support our work that democratize clinical reasoning globally. Um, we, I think, started off um, in many ways naively thinking that we could just do this constantly, but I think it's literally impossible <laughs> to grow to the scale that we want to grow to make the impact that we want to impact without um, your support. And um, the Patreon is, uh, there are multiple tiers, the short version of which is you have more, hang out with us um, many times a month. Um, doing conversations just like this. Rez and I present cases to each other um, about four to five times a month, uh, exclusive schemas and even live events, including most recently actually a case presented by New York Times' Lisa Sanders. So um, go to this website. Um, it's actually, um, there are tiers for $5 a month, $10 a month, and $20 a month. Really a cup of coffee or a couple of cups of coffee goes a long, long way. So we really, really appreciate you considering this and uh, get more today and hopefully get to know you better. And unbiased, but uh, biased. I'm a Patreon myself. I haven't made the jump to the upper tiers, but it's something I'll definitely continue with. Or you get so much out of it. And then for, for those who have stuck around, we have some brief teaching points that I'd like to go through just to kind of summarize the case. Robbie and Reza both highlighted this already, but with an inflammatory presentation, the I made mnemonic is your best initial approach. So infection, malignancy, autoimmune drugs, and endocrine. And then some more interesting facts. So colonic lymphoma is typically non-Hodgkin's. Rarely it can be T-cell and Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then this mass-forming ischemic colitis is a rare variant of ischemic colitis, which mimics malignancy. It histologically shows features of ischemic colitis, such as thickening due to edema, submucosal fibrosis, and cholesterol emboli. And management for this is conservative. So being aware of it can help avoid an unnecessary resection. And then for those who don't know, HLH is a life-threatening syndrome of excessive immune activation presenting as a subacute febrile illness with multi-organ involvement. It can be familial, sporadic, or triggered with macrophages, NK cells, and cytotoxic T lymphocyte dysregulation leading to hemago <laughs> hemophagocytosis and cytokine storm. And Reza brought up a great tool, the H-score. And in the next slide, I just have some criteria that can help you suss out whether HLH might be involved in 
We've talked about them. It's fever, splenomegalocytopenia, hypertriglyceridemia is one of them, hemophagocytosis, lower absent NK cell activity, a serum veritin, and then the soluble IL-2 receptor. Um, that's, that's all I have for everyone. Thank you guys so much for coming and agreeing to do this. Um, just to show how willing they were, I just sent these guys an email and didn't really explain anything. And they responded, we're absolutely game. Let us know what you have in mind. And we just took it from there. So thank you guys for being so willing to come and talk with and share clinical reasoning. Um, I'm sure this will get some more people excited about it as excited as I am. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. It was really, it was, it was awesome to, 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 to have you guys come here. And uh, like Kevin just said, you know, it goes back to that. What's great about this is, is, is you guys do make it exciting. And I, and I know that there's the excitement and then there's the joy piece, which I know is something that's important to you, Russ. And I, I agree with you hundred percent on that. And, and then that piece and that is, is that what's fun about this is that everyone can do it. If you, if you work at it and you practice, we can all do it. And, and then I say, we're always better as a team than we are as individuals. So thank you guys so much. It was great to see you. I've always wanted to do this, but <laughs> do do do.